Hello, Hooray for Monday listeners. My name is Michelle Welk, and I am a Marketing and Communications Associate at Center for Inspired Teaching. In this week's episode, we're sharing an eye-opening conversation I had with Dr. Sarah Ash Coombs, an attending physician at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Aletta is here with me to offer some context. Hello, Aletta. Hello, Michelle. I'm looking forward to hearing your interview with Dr. Coombs. I've known her for some time and found her insights helpful both in my experience as a parent and as a teacher. So tell us, what are you talking with her about today? Well, I want to echo your sentiment. I too found her incredibly insightful and wanted to ask her about all sorts of things. But today's conversation is really focused on children's mental health, that topic we've been looking into over the past several weeks. We've been looking at it from the school perspective, and Dr. Coombs offers a different angle, sharing what she's observing through her work in the emergency department at Children's National and as the director of outreach for the hospital, where she serves as a spokesperson on topics like this for other hospitals, public health forums, schools of medicine, etc. I understand a lot of Dr. Coombs' observations and suggestions resonate with the findings in the CDC Youth Risk Behavior Survey we've been discussing these past few weeks. Yes. She says her experience and that of so many of the physicians she comes into contact with echoes the concern that there is a persistent rise in children's mental health needs, exacerbated by the pandemic, but not exclusively because of the pandemic. We know teachers have also found that to be the case. Does Dr. Coombs offer any suggestions for those of us who are not in the medical profession, what we can do to support young people? She does. She offers specific strategies teachers can use to help strengthen support and community with their students. She points out that the significant amount of time teachers spend with children and the unique perspective gained into their students' lives means that for teachers, working to address mental health issues isn't a nice to have, it's a need to have. And on that note, Dr. Coombs offers a few concrete steps teachers and school leaders can take to build school connectedness. And she emphasizes that teachers are not alone in their larger communities. There are other people and organizations doing this work as well, and knowing how to find and access that wider network of support can be part of the solution. Those are such important points. Well, let's listen to your interview now. I'm Aletta Margolis, and this is Hooray for Monday, your inspiration and toolkit for the week ahead. Safe and happy and healthy. Hooray for Monday, April 24th, 2023. I am Dr. Sarah Ash Coombs, and I'm an attending physician in the emergency department at Children's National Hospital, which means that I am a doctor who treats any and all children who walk through our doors with cuts, scrapes, bruises, falls, fractures, medical problems, really any reason a child would come seek care at a hospital. I'm based here in DC, so I live in DC near the wharf. And I also, as part of my job, do outreach, which means I work with community hospitals locally to help them with their pediatric care. And I also talk with media outlets and do a lot of health communications work. So those are two very important, but also dissimilar roles. Can you give an example? I'm sure there is no average day, but what an average day may look like for you. 
Absolutely. So one thing is you're hundred percent right. There's no average day. So I would say I have days when I'm very clinically heavy, which means I'm usually doing less of the other stuff. So if I have a shift that really takes over the bulk of a day, my shifts are usually something like 3 PM to midnight. So prior to shift, I'm kind of mentally preparing, getting myself together. I might have a meeting or two, but I usually try and keep it light because I know I have a long day ahead. So on shift, I I'm not connected to any devices other than my work computer. So there's no healthcare communications going on at that time other than the direct patient interaction. Other typical days are really just a mix of everything. So for example, yesterday and today, you know, I did a brief live media segment this morning. I had a phone call with one of the directors of a Virginia hospital that does mostly adult emergency medicine, but they have a pediatric population. So they look to us for guidance. And we were talking specifically about pediatric stroke pathways. So offering that type of support. And then I hopped on a couple meetings and professor rounds and some academic pieces with Children's National, with my institution. So it's fun because there is no typical day. Uh, I'm someone who gets bored easily. So I like being able to bounce around from one thing to the next. Sounds like you have ample opportunity to do that. So as I've mentioned to you, one of the primary things that we'd like to talk about today, uh, which in hearing a bit more about your background, I think you will be an absolutely great resource on, is insight into a recent CDC report, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey which kind of deals with a whole host of topics with regard to the overall well-being of young people. But the step that grabbed the headlines is pretty focused on mental health-related issues. Um, and of course, obviously, with any mental health struggles or obstacles that can lead to, as the title of the survey implies, some risky behaviors. So as mentioned, the headlines really pulled out some pretty dire pieces of information about the state of our young people's mental health. There are a lot of stats that particularly talk about young women, members of the LGBTQ plus community, and then of course, given intersectionality, any other member you know, of traditionally oppressed or marginalized communities, black, brown, indigenous, those things are even further exacerbated by other underlying inequities. So what I would love to hear from you is, based on what the CDC report says, do you see this reflected in your practice? What is your on the ground insight as a doctor? Yeah, so I would say that the first thing is rather depressingly, the CDC report did not come as a surprise. So mm -hmm. I think being on the ground, you know, so I'm in a pediatric specific facility in the emergency room, like that is my role. And so any child who has a mental health crisis, especially if it's acute suicidality, something that is really a threat to life or a limb, as we call it in the emergency world, they're going to come to us. So we see, we see many children every single day coming in anew with things like thoughts of suicidality, potentially even an attempt at suicide, um, a worsening state of their overall mental health to the point where the child or their family just can't cope at home, you know, maybe making plans to end their own lives or just feeling that they are so out of control or having something like a psychosis episode, a break from reality, that they need to be with us in the emergency department. And I think all those of us who work in probably the educational sphere as well, but certainly in the medical sphere, the pediatric medical sphere, we've just seen this as a growing problem over the course of our time in pediatrics. You know, I've been doing pediatrics specifically now for 
I mean, around 15 years and, you know, and then a, a decade within the pediatric emergency world. So I'm not the most seasoned. I don't have sort of a 50 year retrospective view, but I certainly, I would say even over those 10 years, it seems as though the mental health of our youth has been worsening, essentially. And as you mentioned, that was brought out in this report and even prior to the CDC's report, um, in I think it was 2021 itself, and actually the AAP, which is our large governing body, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they declared a state of emergency for the mental health of America's youth. And, you know, on the one hand, declaring a state of emergency, what does it really get you? Well, it maybe just brings a spotlight to it. It's you're asking for things like federal funds, which you may or may not get, but it is, I think, a way of highlighting what's happening, especially for those who aren't in medicine, who aren't in pediatrics, who aren't in education, because if you're not in those spheres, you might not know what's going on. And even if, as you mentioned, Michelle, we're both parents, and even if you're a parent and you're a well-intentioned parent, but let's say your work is nothing to do with mental health or with kids, you might not know what's going on in that facet of your kid's life. So I think having those declarations out there having education bodies and medical bodies bring attention to it is very necessary. And so in terms of what we're seeing on the ground, I, you know, I could pull specific data, which I don't have right now, but just anecdotally in terms of the feeling internally is that we're just seeing increasing numbers of children coming in with mental health crises. And I do think whether it's through declaring a state of emergency or something elevating it to a more high up federal level, we need to increase services for these children. Um, and that is partly what I love about the CDC report, bringing in a lot, as you mentioned, which is part of why we're here about schools. Yes, you know, a teacher might not be a trained psychologist, but especially an experienced teacher, they've been working with children for years and years. They know them inside and out. They, they know the tactics, the techniques that they can use to support and be there for the children. And given that we might have a wait list of a year to get in with a psychologist, your best bet as let's say a depressed seventh grader or an anxious third grader might be your homeroom teacher. Yeah. You know, you've set up for a nice segue into a much more hopeful conversation, which you've alluded to. The CDC did identify schools as one of the primary places that can really help to mitigate some of these really negative outcomes and negative situations that young people are in specifically discussing the concept of connectedness, which we've been talking about here at Inspire Teaching for a while now. Um, we are really hoping to instill and spread this idea to as many educators as possible. So I'm wondering if there are any specific pieces of insight or advice you might share for teachers knowing that they are not medical professionals, if there's anything from your experience that you think could translate to a classroom. Yeah, so I think one thing that really bears driving home is don't be afraid to bring up some of these topics. Honestly, that's something that even in the medical clinical sphere, we've had to tell each other. So we used to often think if you have teenagers that say they're coming into the emergency room for something not related to mental health, if you ask them a question such as, you know, have you been depressed recently? Have you ever had suicidal thoughts? the fear was, oh my goodness, you might incite something. You know, this teenager who never had those thoughts by putting putting that out there and, and asking that, what if, God forbid, you forced them into something? There's actually been research done to show that's not the case. And if anything, it's the reverse case. By opening up that place to 
talk or to share that they might not have ever had offered to them, you can help more people than you would hurt. So, you know, let's say, and I say teenager because in general, that's the age we're dealing with, but in general is kind of a big group, you know, teenagers tend to be more affected by the severe depression, anxiety, suicidality. We used to really shy away from in, in primary care or an emergency care where you're doing more of a general visit, talking about mental health, because, you know, there was the idea of we have a lot of other things going on, which is true. You might have some other pressing medical issue or a broken bone to fix, but there was definitely this idea of, yeah, but if we broach it, what if we make things worse or what if we upset them somehow? And we've really shown that that's not the case. And actually it's very helpful. And I think because in a way it's destigmatizing the topic for the teenager, it's saying, Hey, this is a normalized thing. You know, a lot of people experience sadness. Sometimes that sadness is a little bit of sadness or is a crime out for 30 minutes and then you feel better you go out to ice cream with a friend sometimes that sadness is longer term sometimes that sadness is always with you and it grows and it lasts weeks and it makes you feel that you don't want to do your normal hobbies have you experienced that kind of sadness and you know now I'm getting into ways you could even phrase this for a slightly younger child I do think that for teachers who are in such constant contact with these kids putting this topic out there is good you know, I don't I don't want teachers to be afraid that they're going to create problems or make things worse. I think I think that for those children in their classrooms who might not know where to turn, if they know their teacher is talking about this, is receptive to hearing about it, that mm-hmm. gives them a space to talk about it. And I think that's been particularly exaggerated when we were really at the height of the COVID pandemic and deaths across the U.S., we know that children lost people who were close to them. For some children, especially the type of population I tend to care for in my clinical practice, it's not necessarily the mother or the father who is the stable caregiver parental type figure. It's mm-hmm. often, for example, a grandparent. You know, We know that older people were more vulnerable to the severe effects of COVID and died at higher rates. So we might have a child whose primary caregiver was his or her grandfather. And that grandfather passed away due to COVID in 2021. And that child is just devastated and not knowing how to deal with it and not knowing how to talk about it. And there's now sadness and probably some anxiety wrapped up in all of it. And I think if we just bury that away or don't talk about it, that's probably the most dangerous thing for a child because then they they don't have any outlet to discuss it. And then they might turn to these unhealthy coping mechanisms that we talk about in the CDC Youth Behavior Report. I'm wondering too, if there's anything in your experience working in community outreach, um, you mentioned earlier that you were speaking to a community-based hospital in Virginia, uh, giving guidance as to their practices. If there's something that you can see from more of a school leadership level with regards to building school connectedness, beyond just the classroom and making it an institutional thing? Oh, that's a great question. So yeah, I think for sure one of the connectedness pieces could be just the making it an open space, a safe space to discuss mental health and whether that's putting on a school-wide event or an assembly with themes around it just to make it discussed. I think the other piece is 
schools can partner with medical facilities. And I will say we've done some of that at Children's National and it's it's never super easy or straightforward because obviously there's going to be red tape on both sides. You know, we know that medical systems and education systems, there's always bureaucracy and red tape. Um, but in my outreach role, I will say I've talked with some of the school health folks and there's overlap, especially in, in DC and Washington DC with the school health practitioners and the children's national community health practitioners and coming together with the idea of we really want the same goal which is to have children grow up safe and happy and healthy i would say if you're at a higher level school administrator don't be afraid to look more broadly and access your resources you know if you know that in your backyard for example is children's national um, which is a big pediatric healthcare facility, or you mentioned you're in Philadelphia. So you're, you know, if you have chalk around the corner, there are all these places that deal with children and have children at various points in their lives and may have continued points of connection with the child. The goal is that we can together, I guess, form, you know, without getting too metaphorical, but kind of form parts of a meshwork almost, right? You want that that safety net idea, right? And you have the different layers. You have education, you have medical home, you have potentially family or caregiver, and you want these interlocking safety nets because if one falls away, which can happen unavoidably, whether it's because of a pandemic, which is unprecedented, or because of a tragic death of a caregiver, you want there to be something to still catch the child. So I do think that as we move forward, and I'm excited for doing it in my role as well, I do think partnering with the broader community is going to be key because realizing we don't exist in separate silos in the child's life, that we, we can all integrate together to help those children get through and hopefully improve their mental health as they move forward. So an underlying theme I'm hearing in your insights is that speaking about mental health and really seeking to address these issues with students proactively is something that educators should view as an integral part of daily practice, a necessary component of their teaching. In the past few years especially, it seems that teachers are being asked to wear many hats. But what I hear in your advice is that it is not an additional task to build a supportive environment in your classroom, but something teachers should feel empowered to do. And I think it is that taking a step back piece. And believe me, I 100% hear you. Like, you know, I'm a doctor, but actually I'm from a family of more so educators and teachers and people in that realm. Honestly, as a pediatric doctor and also knowing the burden that are put on teachers, and I, I know it can be a really, really hard job. I think it's a harder job than I have. You know, people often look at me and say, oh my gosh, how do you treat sick kids? And I'm like, respect to you. You know, if you're a special <laughs> education teacher, I mean, God bless, like that's just such an amazing job we all already have too much to do I think especially those of us who work in a field with young people where there's so much you potentially can do and you want to do mm -hmm. so I think instead of looking at it as oh my gosh this is an extra task or a chore it's part of what you want in your classroom and it's that idea of if you want to teach right like let's say your passion is teaching maths um Sorry, I call it maths, being from England, but math in this country, you know, you, you want to teach children, right? How to do their multiplication tables or how to count. If that child sitting in front of you is distracted because they didn't get breakfast and there's not enough food in the home or they're late to school every day because they don't have reliable transportation, you know, again, I'm not trying to sort of 
be too Pollyanna, I shouldn't say we can change the world, but I, I do think that you have to take that step back. And again, I fully understand and recognize it is hard to do that because sometimes you want to say, look, I have a lesson plan. I have 40 minutes. That's all I get. I have to get through this. It's the same as an emergency department visit. Look, I have X number of kids in the waiting room. I have to get through this. I have to move on. I have to fix this child's laceration or do something very concrete. At the same time, what we've shown again and again is if you don't examine well, why is it that this child keeps, as we call it in the medical world, bouncing back to the emergency department? Is mm. it actually because there isn't transportation to go to their, let's say, primary neurology appointments to get set up with a routine or a medication regimen that can prevent them ending up in the emergency department? And sometimes it's that one step back and that one ounce of prevention that you say, oh, okay, so what you're actually really in need of more than me being a doctor for you right now is for me to connect you with my social worker and work out a cab voucher service for you for the next two months or you know, something that seems very basic but could actually mm -hmm. impact their life. And I think it's the same in a school setting, right? You know, If you have children in the classroom who are just being horribly affected by a terrible home situation with, for example, domestic violence or hunger, how are you going to expect them to then focus on you know, learning subtraction when that's occupying the bigger part of their brain. So I, I do think it's hopefully comes across as empowering and not as an extra burden. And, you know, with the empowering piece, I do also want to say, you know, teachers are so amazing. And I think we often talk about in medicine and as women in medicine, and I know in pediatrics and in education, we are women heavy professions in general. So I think there's this imposter syndrome that often happens and the idea of imposter syndrome gets put out there of, well, what do I know? You know, and I could see a teacher saying, I don't have a psychology degree. I don't, you know, have that training, but you, you are the expert because that's what you do. You, you educate children. You literally are, are forming them, are with them, are interacting with them, are seeing how they react to their surroundings, are getting this insight into their lives. So don't undersell yourself would be my other piece of advice. You know, you you can be that person who makes a difference. Links to the resources are in the written version of this week's Hooray for Monday, as well as the notes for this episode. What we're curious about. Each week, a member of the Inspired Teaching community will share something that's currently piquing their curiosity. Maybe it will spark yours too. This week, we hear from Dr. Coombs. So I was in my children's room the other night. I have an 11 month old and I just turned three year old. And the 11 month old was soundly asleep, but was laughing. And it just made me think to baby's dream. And I'm sure I could go to Dr. Google as many of my patients do or look it up. I'm sure there's research. I'm sure people have put EEG monitors on babies, but you know, it made me think about dreaming and the dream state and the purpose it serves and the idea of, hmm, how young are we when we start dreaming and what type of dreams do we have? Because then I looked over at my toddler who was invariably sleeping at some weird horizontal angle in his bed with his feet at the opposite end and, you know, clearly moved around in his sleep. I wondered if he was running from something in some fictional sleep story. So that was, that was what I was pondering as what made my little girl kind of smile and giggle that way in her sleep? And what do babies dream about? And do they like what they dream about? Do they dream about valleys and valleys of breast milk? Or I'm not sure. I'm not sure what comes into their mind as a pleasant dream, but I hope they are pleasant was another thing I thought. And yeah, I just, I think it's an interesting construct dreams in general, 
And, you know, I think young minds are also so interesting. And when do you start forming those dreams and what are they? Resources. A, B, C, D, E of learner needs. This assessment tool from Inspired Teaching provides a simple, effective framework for identifying and exploring areas where your students may need additional support. Zoom out. At a time when the world can seem full of existential crises, this activity from Inspired Teaching's Inspired to Learn collection is useful in helping students understand these big issues better and may even help to make big problems feel more manageable. American Academy of Pediatrics. This organization's website, as recommended by Dr. Coombs, includes an array of tips and strategies for addressing mental health issues, as well as connections to other organizations for teachers to utilize in their classrooms. Professional learning. Registration is live for our Teaching with Improvisation Fellowship, a special opportunity this summer for teachers at Washington, D.C. schools. It's a three-day summer institute, June 27th through 29th, live in person with in-classroom support during school year 23-24. The program is free and teachers receive a participation stipend. You can find the application link in the written version and the notes for this episode. The theme for our May Inspired Teaching Institute is 10 ways to end the school year with joy. Online Monday, May 8th, 3.45 to 5 p.m. Eastern or online Wednesday, May 17th, 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern. As the school year winds to a close, there's joy in the completion, but there is also cause for celebration in the journey. In this institute, participants will explore 10 different year-end activities that range in duration from 10 minutes to several days. Each activity keeps the learning going and makes use of the community you've built over the course of the school year. These standards-based activities are applicable to multiple grade levels and subject areas. All registrants will receive an e-booklet with full descriptions of the activities in the Institute. You can also check out booklets from past sessions in the written version and linked in the notes. This program is free and participants will receive a certificate of completion. Hooray for Monday is an award-winning weekly publication of Center for Inspired Teaching, an independent nonprofit organization that invests in and supports teachers. Inspired Teaching provides transformative, improvisation-based professional learning for teachers that is 100% engaging intellectually, emotionally, and physically. Our mission is to create radical change in the school experience, away from compliance and toward authentic engagement. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.